Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen. So, Celine, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, psychology. Psychology. <laughs> All of it. Um, <laughs> and I guess just off the top, if I sound bunged up, I'm sorry. I have a non-COVID related cold. There's lots of them um, about. Mm. Yeah, we're all getting generic ill. Um, so I've done my lateral flows and it's nothing to be worried about, but it is annoying. But mm. hopefully you can't hear it too much through no, the, you the internet. Just gives you a nice sort of nasally quality, which everybody mm. loves. Um, oh, okay, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, psychology. So what, what we thought we'd talk about today is uh, a particular sort of area of psychology, which is around learning, but particularly, so not really talking about going to school or learning sort of things at school particularly, although it is mm. relevant, but we're talking more about learning behavioral changes, I suppose. So how we learn to do things as we, we grow up, as we get older, as we fit into society. So how we learn new skills, how we learn to do things. So mm. in psychology, the, the term learning covers all of that broad area, really. Um, so it would be nice to have a little chat about that. And then what we can try and do is, uh, and this is really off the hoof, so it's not like we're preparing a dissertation here, but it's looking at these bits of theory around learning and thinking how might they apply to cultic situations and how cults sort of operate. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, the nature of this sort of podcast is it's a discussion. It's not based on a, a paper that, that we've written or, you know, anything like that. So it is just kind of taking a first pass at these things, thinking, oh, I wonder how these might relate to cults. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the idea today. So it's a bit more... Um, it's a bit more of a kind of uh, in-depth discussion, this one, as opposed to last week's, which was mm -hmm. just a bit of fun. Um, yeah, so where do we start? Well, did you say there was three? Yeah, so I'm actually going to take what I'm talking about today from one of my old textbooks from the Open University. Which I'm sure has a very exciting and, you know... Do you want to know the Fancy full title? title. Yeah. Um, actually, it's it's just called, well, it's from the DSE 212, which other Flashy, yeah. psychology students um, at the OU probably will recognise. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's called Mapping Psychology, and it's edited by Dorothy Mile, Anne Phoenix, and Kerry Thomas. And this is basically an introduction. So it's quite early on in my um, studies, and it was used as a kind of introduction to the the ways of thinking about psychology and um, it's quite a nice little way in really. So mm -hmm. I thought that would be quite a good source to use. So I'll put the um, full reference on the, the show notes because it's obviously, it's a course book. Um, it's probably not that easy to get hold of if you wanted to read it. Um, but um, you know, anyway, that's, that's what it is. Uh, so, yeah, the three areas that we're going to talk about today relate to three different ways of thinking about psychology, and they are behaviorism, uh, one, uh, cognitive psychology, another one, and socio-cultural learning, so social psychology, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought we'd talk about behaviorism first, and I, I suppose the thing that got me thinking about this was um, I saw one or two references to classical conditioning on twitter um recently and and i thought well okay let's because that's quite an interesting area let's just understand what classical conditioning is because do, 
believe in that anymore. Uh, yeah, I think we do believe in it. Um, there is lots do of evidence for it. It's not a religion, Celine. Um, it's uh, there. There is lots of evidence that absolutely classical conditioning happens, as does other forms of conditioning. No, yeah, I just know there's been some dis- some discrediting of behaviorism, isn't there? So I guess we can talk. Uh, about yeah, I would say so. Behaviorism stems from the idea that that uh, psychology wanted to become a proper science, mm. a hard science, if you like, like physics, mm. and so what what um what they started to do is think well what what can we know what can't we know Mm. so you can't really know what's actually happening inside somebody's head remember this was well before the idea that you could have a brain scan even yeah so this is literally seeing the brain as a black box Mm. and there's no point in speculating what's going on inside the black box because we'll never know never know um, but what we can do is we can measure outcomes and outputs. So in other words, we can measure behavior in mm. some way. Mm-hmm. So that's really where behaviorism starts from. It's saying that we don't actually know or indeed care the processes that are going on in somebody's head. We're not interested in that. That's not, that's, you know, as far as we're concerned, that's not science. What science is, is about measuring real world outcomes. So what can you observe? Um, so this leads us to looking at things like um, the amount of perhaps sweat that somebody produces, the amount of eye movements or the direction of eye movements at certain stimuli Perfect and actual behaviors. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, choices that are made between A and B that you can you can measure. And time it takes you to make a decision about this compared to that. Um, so these are all things that you can actually measure using scientific methodology in a lab. Um, and so that was behaviorism. That was what it was about. So um, at the same time, there was there was this thing that happened, which is, I think most people have probably heard this story, but um, Pavlov's dog, you just mentioned it. The idea of what happened was Pavlov um, was actually not a psychologist or interested in the brain really at all. He was actually a um a physiologist so he was interested in how um, animals work essentially physiologically and um, he wanted to see how the saliva glands in dogs affected how they broke down food and and um, how that all worked if you like so so he basically was measuring the amount of saliva that dogs were producing but what he noticed was that dogs were producing saliva before they started to eat which is not necessarily normal and he realized that they were predicting meal times um, by activity that was going on. Perhaps things were, you know, people were getting food ready and stuff. So the mm-hmm. dogs were noticing that and anticipating, oh, it's, you know, it's dinner time. Someone said about that recently. They were like, it's mo- they they were thinking about a burger and then they started salivating. They're like, it's moments like this and I remember I'm just an animal. <laughs> yes. Well, this is mm-hmm. it. So this was the... Um, yeah, this was the, the theory, and and actually, you know, it's absolutely right that that we we do animals and humans share this in that we uh, we get used to things, and that creates certain expectations, and some of it is at a non-conscious level. So these dogs, um, I mean, again, you don't know what they were thinking, and behaviorism doesn't care whether they were they had in their little head and image of being fed you know that didn't matter mm. actually what mattered was the fact that they were producing saliva on the basis of sounds and activity of their human keepers and he, he tested this then with bells and things like that so when he rang the bell he fed them and then all that the, all that it needed was that the bell rang and the, the mm. salivation would happen mm-hmm. so he, he showed this link between um expectation i suppose and actual um, and this physical Physio- manifestation physiological of response. yeah mm. um, so that's um that's kind of what's known as classical classical conditioning bell rings dog salivates it's it's classical conditioning it's the first type of conditioning that was recognized mm. so in that sense the dog is conditioned to do something when it hears the bell or when it sees the person milling around in the cupboard just like our dog knows as soon as you go into that cupboard uh, she knows that it's treats. you know it's treats time. Um, so yeah, so that's mean walks exactly. Yeah, 
So that's classical conditioning and um, dogs, rats, pigeons. Right, even bees. Yeah. Right, yeah. Bees, they they work out what like certain buttons instigate certain mm. sugar waters and stuff. Yep. So it's been shown over and over again. Um, however, what you're describing there is something slightly different. Um, so what I've just described to you is classical conditioning. Mm. And that's when the animal or the person doesn't have anything to do with it. It just happens to them. Hear a mm. bell, oh, something yeah. happens. Um, so the one that I think most people think they mean when they talk about conditioning is instrumental conditioning, um, which is where something is done on purpose that generates a behavior. Like if you, um, the marshmallow, if you wait, you get another marshmallow. <laughs> And if you don't, well, no, that's well, it repeated. It though. That's if it's repeated. There's ones yeah. with like dogs where they like they get more treats if they pick a certain door. So they always pick the certain door. I suppose would be a better. One. Yeah, if if that that's like there's that a left and a right be. button, and they yeah, like that, that, press, yes. if they press the right button, they notice they get more treats. So they eventually mm. just always press the right button. Yeah, that that would um, that could sit into that category of, of instrumental conditioning, and the one that we're really inter- really interested in, which is really what we mean, is operant conditioning. So that's the one to remember: operant conditioning, and this is where the animal does something, and it it learns in some way that if it does this thing, then it gets something it wants. Mm. So that this is the the pulling the the lever or the pressing the foot on the pedal to get the the treats, if you like. So yes, dogs do that. Pigeons can be trained to do that very very effectively. Um, we think about pigeons as being pretty dim, but they can Never end up clever. doing incredibly intricate things. Rats do it. Um, you suggested I've not seen the research about bees, but you suggested bees do it too. So they um, they learn in this psychological sense. Uh, to do a thing, and doing that mm-hmm. thing delivers a result, a reward, let's say. So that's instrumental conditioning. And so the idea then is for the the person who's trying to change the behavior or control the behavior, so let's say the experimenter in an experiment, the idea is for them to try and shape the behavior to the one that they want. So, you know, they'll... Right, we want to see whether the rat will learn to press the the right lever or the left lever, and so they're they're then trying to train it to do the thing that they want it to do. Just like a dog trainer will train the animal to do the thing yeah, that they want sit. to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pepper sits for her ball. That's right. Um, so that's um, that's operant conditioning, um, and it's being so it's it's down to the creature. The animal itself is making the decision. But they're making the decision based on the conditioning that's kind of been done to them, if you like. Mm. So it relies on a, I suppose, a, a, a another thing at a higher level that is, is deciding yeah. what's happening. The other thing is it's individual dependent. Because I think it always talks about it as though it's like everybody or every dog, for instance, will be uh, able to be trained in that way. But it's, it is individual dependent, isn't it? Because some dogs are really food motivated. So if you do behaviorism with the, like rewarding them with treats and they're really food motivated, then that works really well, doesn't it? If they're not very food motivated, then it doesn't work so well. You have yeah, to find absolutely. the right motivational tool. You, you do, yeah, you do. Um, it relies on positive, like reward, doesn't it? So that's that's another term that's worth um, throwing in here. It's called positive reinforcement. So this is the strengthening of the likelihood that the animal will do the thing mm. as a result of the behavior so it's positive to them because they want it so they are taking an action that is going to get them the reward they want they're more likely to do it and the more they do that the stronger that reinforcement is mm. um, and now in the end of course as, as you've mentioned about the the dog uh, training you can take that reward away Mm-hmm. and the animal will, will sit even without the reward. So at first you train the animal through positive reinforcement by giving them a treat every time they do it correctly. Every time they do it correctly, you give them a treat, a treat, a treat. But eventually you might just say sit, and they sit without the treat because they are now conditioned. So they are they no longer need the reward. 
Mm. And that's when conditioning has actually happened. So they're no longer sort of waiting for it. However, um, I think probably most of us can anticipate that if you don't, if you never reinforce that ever again, then that reinforcement is likely to wane. You normally so like you swap need... for something less high stakes but still good, don't you? Like pats, yeah. you give them a pat on the head instead. Yeah. Like... But it's surprising, you know, animals will still do things even without treats. They, they are mm. conditioned to it, you know. Uh, I mean, this I don't know if this is really what happens, but, you know, there's the old um, story about horses running into burning stables you know and that's because they're just conditioned to go into the stable that's what they do um so it's it's they they may not do what's in their interests eventually because they are just conditioned to do it and i would argue that we're the same you know human beings also will will get into that sort of well we, we also call these we habits don't we? yeah yeah exactly yeah. we do things we get used to it we don't even think about it yeah um, work. what's quite interesting with um with positive reinforcement is that you might if you want an animal to do something quite elaborate you mm. know so something that involves quite a lot of activities like i suppose sitting is quite an easy exercise for a dog but like if you want them to dogs. yeah or sit <laughs> and then lie over and sort of roll over and i don't know beg or something well to get them to do an entire agility track exactly. that takes time yeah so yeah obviously you have to build that up so you gradually get them to do one little mm. thing first like you might just get them to raise their head a little bit and mm-hmm. then um, you give them a, the, the positive reinforcement and then they 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 do a bit more and then you give them a bit more until in the end and uh, they're doing the thing that you wanted them to do so that's called shaping so you're shaping mm. the animal's behavior into the way that you want so they'll do the thing that you want them to do so that's positive reinforcement and that's um, all part of this operant conditioning where the animal the jargon is that the animal sends out operants mm. um, which is basically just saying that it behaves in a certain way but of course, the idea is that the trainer or the experimenter is able to manipulate that by changing the uh, the outcome so that the animal ends up doing the things that they want them to do. I would also argue, though, and here's a bit, uh, it's a bit controversial, but I would also argue that whilst we are training dogs, they're, they're also training, training us. Because yeah. I know, like, you know, I know Pepper um, will do certain things that that gets a response from us and eventually we don't even think about it so when we let her out in the morning she has a particular bark that says i want to come back in again now and she does that bark and i don't even think about it i just get up yeah (laughs) i just get up and open the door and of course what that means is that she's trained me so i think it it does work both ways which i think is quite an interesting cute things for attention Mm, yeah that's right she puts one paw in the air (laughs) that's right and just looks at you the what should i think about podcast has been going now since around november 2020 and we've really enjoyed doing it we release at least two shows a week it's about eight a month of course with sunday being an interview and wednesday being our discussion about a new subject each week we love you our listeners and we really value the interaction we have with you and we want to keep the podcast going Currently, I pretty much work on the podcast full-time, researching topics, booking guests, recording and editing, with Celine working part-time, doing very much the same things. So in order for us to keep going and continue to improve, we've reached that point in the life of a podcast where we have to make some decisions about how we support it financially. Most podcasts have ads, either that are delivered by the podcast hosts or from third parties that interrupt the show. We really don't want to do that. We want to keep the What Should I Think About podcast ad-free. So we're going to try something different to most podcasts. We'd like to ask you if you think this podcast is worth a pound or a dollar fifty or a euro twenty a month or whatever the equivalent is in your own currency. If you think it's worth that, we'd like to invite you to become a member or a patron for just that. So how we're doing it is we're flattening out our tiers on Patreon to just our single lowest tier. For those patrons, not only will you get the two public podcasts a week, but you'll also get exclusive video each month, 
bonus content of at least one a month and probably more, and exclusive access to the What Should I Think About Facebook private group, where you can contribute to our Ask Us Anything episodes coming up soon and talk about the show. We've got other plans too that will make your pound or dollar fifty even better value, but we can't say too much about that yet. We really want to make access to this community possible to everyone, and we think this minimal amount will do that, while providing the show with a small income in order for us to keep going. So the next few weeks we'll be flattening out our tiers on Patreon and providing all benefits through the lowest tier, currently known as loss aversion, for just a pound or its equivalent in your own currency. So please consider being part of our community. Thank you. The link to our Patreon page can be found in the show notes. Um, so there's that. Um, a few, a couple more terms. There's also this thing called negative reinforcement, which, again, people often get this wrong. Bad. But negative reinforcement isn't when you punish. That's another thing. So mm. negative reinforcement is when you train the animal to do something in order to stop something unpleasant happening. So the classic one with this is like a loud noise. So if the animals experience a loud noise and they learn that if they press a lever, the noise stops, then mm. that's called negative reinforcement. It's not, it's not as common, that one, but no, it's a bit that's mean. what negative... Yeah, but that's what negative reinforcement means. It just means that the animal has learned to, to send out its operants, do something, um, and then the, the bad thing stops. I suppose eating might be a good example of that. Um, so eating will be something that an animal will do because it doesn't like the feeling of, of hunger. So we don't kind of think about it. We just, just think, oh, I'm hungry now. I need to eat something. And so we just go ahead and eat. So that's sort of like negative reinforcement, really. We're trying to get rid of that horrible feeling of hunger. And then the other one that is uh, often confused with negative reinforcement is punishment. Mm. which is where you essentially set up a situation where something bad happens as a result of the behavior. So, you know, if they do this thing, then they get punished in some way. Mm. Um, and obviously like that's, that. that's the one that we don't like. And in fact, um, one of the ma- most famous names in behaviorism, uh, BS Skinner, he was very adamant that um, punishment was a bad way of, training somebody or something so he believed that um it was not only was it unethical but it was actually very ineffective because it builds up fears within the animal that gets in the way of the the specific behavior you're looking for so they might behave in all sorts of unexpected ways because of the fear that you're engendering mm. so the example it gives in the book is you know if if a, if a teacher is very cruel and um, frightening to a pupil um, in order to get them to behave in a certain way whilst they might be afraid of the teacher they they then might behave in all sorts of ways that are not expected like playing truant because they don't want to go to school because they're frightened of the teacher for instance so Mm. um, Skinner was very clear that actually punishment is a bad way to train uh, people and for people to learn indeed for animals too And, and you know modern dog trainers and so on they they also only apply positive reinforcement Mm-hmm. They uh, they only use that. They don't use uh, punishment at all. So um, that's quite well, interesting. We French in the evil French teacher's class. So. <laughs> Indeed. So that's she, um, she loved some negative slash punishment. Yeah. Well, that's right. We all know teachers like that. Well, I certainly remember ones and managers. Yeah, absolutely. And I um, think whilst you have to be mean to be respected, and it doesn't work. It seems to get a short-term benefit, but, you know, long-term, it, it, it seems to create negative side effects. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's that's this whole conditioning behaviorism thing. So my question, I suppose, that I wanted to consider with you is how might this apply to high-control groups? So, so we're not saying here that high-control groups are the only ones who deploy some of these things, but I... I'm interested to see whether they deploy them in a specific way and in specific ways. What's your thoughts about that, given you know the people we've spoken to over the, the months yeah, of doing suppose, this podcast? I suppose 
Positive reinforcement would be love bombing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think everyone that listens know what love bombing is because it's used across. All, and that actually that features but, later in another, another way of thinking about learning. But yeah, I think that's, that's, um, yeah, that's a good one. Well, it's yeah. what, every time you do something good, that like no matter how small it is, I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah. And great. Um, so it's like, and then, yeah, negative and punishment. I guess, would you come up with an example for negative? Because I always just think punishment, so. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna stretch this a little bit. So if, if you know, we've got a behaviourist uh, listening, somebody who's um, specifically mm. a behavioural psychologist, they might um, tell me off about this because I'm going to expand this a little bit. And in a way, go into the areas that Skinner didn't want to. Um, mm. Because I, I think in cults, it's hard to measure. Um, it, it's it's hard to see the actual punishment itself because a lot of it is internal. Mm. So, so for me, it's like the guilt and the feelings of fear um, associated with sinning or doing the wrong thing mm. or not doing the right thing. So you have a feeling of, um, so one of the things I was, I felt guilty about was not pioneering when I was a Jehovah's Witness. So when I left school, I first of all got a full-time job, um, which was not encouraged by the organization. Um, for youngsters, what was encouraged was that they go full-time pioneering, which was 90 hours a month, knocking mm. on doors and preaching. I didn't do that. So I went to get a full-time job, but I only lasted that about three and a half years because I was always, I felt this knot in my stomach, this guilt that I wasn't pioneering. Mm. And so once I then left my job, got my window cleaning rounds and then went pioneering, that, that feeling abated. So I would say that's negative reinforcement because I had this horrible feeling of um, guilt, of feeling mm. that I wasn't doing the right thing. Um, and then when I did, do the thing that they wanted me to, which was pioneer, that feeling stopped. So that I think that's a classical yeah. example of negative reinforcement. I think I know what punishment is for me saying that then it would be like disfellowshipping or shunning. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. the punishment. Yeah. yeah so um, there's lots of different punishments in, in different cults. So I mean, yeah. like with who we interviewed recently, um, Angela. Yeah. Um, from Children of God cult. Um, she said about the way that they would basically be like, don't look at anybody, be in that's complete right. isolation, hmm. um, things like that. So that's punishment, I would say. Yeah, so Angela um, will be putting up Angela's um, touching and fascinating interview in a couple of weeks' time. Um, one of the things that she said, which absolutely relates to this, is that even later, many years later, she still had this habit of looking down of not looking at people in the face, in the eye. Even later, when there is no punishment around it, there's no, you know, no reason to not do that. She still behaves in a certain way because she's been conditioned to do it. Obviously, this is, we can't say for sure, it's a hypothesis, but it would sound to me like that's a good example of this kind of uh, conditioning. This, uh, You end up doing something... Until in the end, you don't even think about it. It just becomes part of your behaviour. You are now mm. conditioned to do that thing. So yeah, I think there's lots of uh, there's lots of behavioural um, conditioning that goes on in organisations. You know, you're conditioned to um, think about, worry about doing the wrong thing, about sinning, about answering, about obeying your pa <clears throat> your parents in everything, about obeying the elders. Mm. about listening to the circuit overseers. Um, so you, you end up doing all these things. And, of course, going to meetings on a clockwork basis, it's all kind of becomes almost like you're, yeah, you're not even thinking, thinking about it anymore. You're just doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's relevant. And, yes, it is still absolutely relevant. We still know that these sorts of conditioned responses absolutely happen um, it's just that I think that the, the backlash against behaviorism was that this 
this uh, refusal to think about what's going on inside the black box. So whilst it takes you so far, um, there's a belief, there's a feeling that actually that's not good enough. You know, we need to start to think a bit more about what's going on inside that black box. We can't just ignore that because it is a physiological system. And therefore, let's try and understand what's happening. It's complex, but it's not, it's not untouchable. It's not. We don't want to have anything that is, is unknowable, so therefore we need to... It seems to... a bit a bit counterproductive, doesn't it? So there's no point trying to understand that mess. Yeah. Yeah, just exactly. put it in a hole. Just call it the black box. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah. so I think it's become... Um, it's, it's out of fashion, if you like, or out of flavour, but there's still a lot of things we can learn from behaviourism, and it still tells us a lot about what's going on in people's mm. behavior I, I do believe he probably has a good background in terms of understanding like you know we talk about childhood stuff like yeah. uh attachment theory and things like that because i think that would link in very clearly with that absolutely um, yeah so it would help you to kind of understand mm. maybe why you do certain things that you don't think about so the things that you don't think about your like automatic responses it would help you understand that because if you're like well what happened maybe that is the reason that i get triggered by that or i get absolutely you know i get a very specific emotion to this particular like situation every time and it will help you maybe with that because you can reflect on things that maybe were reoccurring yeah i mean basically Um, it's the it's the build-up of associations between one mm -hmm. thing and and another thing if you think about it so yeah it's um so the reason you might find going to a you know places that look like kingdom halls stressful yeah yeah um or you know maybe you know why people sometimes that have experienced um difficult situations i don't know with like i I know some people have like sometimes they get they don't want to they still get stressed around men because they've had Mm. bad experiences it's not because they think men are evil it's just because they've had bad experiences Mm. yeah absolutely like that yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so that's right. It, it's this, um, it's this building up of associations between one thing and another thing that creates certain mental states and leads to certain behaviours. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's got a lot. Um, it's got a lot to offer, I think. Um, and certainly in the research into cults, I think it's perhaps an area that we haven't, perhaps we don't sort mm-hmm. of look at as much as we could. In and again, this this is the, um, I suppose the scientific study of cults that that I've talked about before that probably hasn't been done so much although the there is a lot of work around this it's just that we haven't applied it to cults so maybe that's it's high time that we we did that Mm -hmm. um the other the second one i wanted to talk about was the cognitive approaches and in a way this is like the antidote to the behaviorists um and i think what from reading how cognitive psychology comes about it's it probably wouldn't have come about if computers hadn't have uh, have come about because yeah. actually what we started to do was think about thinking and the mind like a computer we always do this in terms of our language and how we understand yeah the brain so whichever like technology we're at at the point is what we use so it used to be very like mechanical that's right we used to discuss it in very like clockwork terms mm. so you know the way of like old mechanical um mechanisms is to be discussed with those terms when you read old textbooks on the brain and then when it goes to, yeah when we get to modern computer times we start to talk about the brain as the world's most complicated computer that's right absolutely that's right and it is it's still the dominant metaphor for mm-hmm. the for the brain or the mind. I mean, we even talk about software, you know, the mind being the software and the brain mm-hmm. being the hardware, which I know mm-hmm. a lot of uh, psychologists don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of physicists don't like it either because it, it, it's kind of quite dualist, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, it, it is a, a very, very powerful metaphor. And, but it, what, what it has allowed us to do is think about um, the way that the brain or the mind might operate at a level that we can talk about it. Um, So if you think about a computer, you know, what's actually happening inside a computer is that, you know, it's lots of um, chips, um, 
well, yeah, it, again, what level are you talking about? You know, you're talking about a level of code, and then underneath that, you've got a level of binary, essentially switches, you know, mm. one and zero. Then you've got um, the actual physical substrate, the the, the chips and uh, the silicon and um, all of that. And it's basically just electrical signals that are firing on and off, on and off, on and off constantly. Mm. Um, that doesn't really tell us anything about what a computer is like for us to use it so if you know if you were to explain to somebody that's what a computer is it doesn't help them to write a letter on a computer or to browse mm. the internet so um or even at a level that we can we can kind of understand it like files or putting files into folders and having documents and a desktop and all these things we borrow these from from the real world in order to understand uh, a level of what's going on that kind of makes sense to us. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what cognitive psychology does. It, um, it tries to create um, a way of thinking about what's happening in the, in the brain that doesn't rely on understanding neurons or even which regions of the brain things might be happening or how these things fire, um, how the gray matter and the, the white matter work. We don't need to know all of that. What we do one is a kind of model that helps us to understand the concepts of what's happening inside the mind. So mm. if you are into um, cognitive psychology, then you'll use a lot of flowcharts and boxes. You know, this happens, and so this is mediated by this. So, you know, you might have a, a fear response here that is mediated by your feelings of security that leads to your decision to run or not run away or do this or do that. Mm. So you have lots of these kind of complicated flow charts that try to talk about the things that impact our decision-making or how we feel about something. Um, and so it's, a, but it is only a represent, representation at a certain level of understanding. If you get deeper than that, of course, it means nothing. It, it, it's really all about the firing of, of neurons, but it gives rise to this level of understanding that we can we can talk about um so that's that's how we end up getting inside the the black box so that's how we solve the black box the black box problem Mm -hmm. is that we say well we don't actually need to understand how all the neurons work and all all this wetware all these gubbins inside the brain we don't have to worry about that we're going to model it and think about it like we would a computer program and that will help us to understand what's happening. And it it presents an opportunity to test things, so to predict certain behaviours and then to observe those behaviours or not. So you can do experimental psychology with cognitive psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can also go further than that. You can make um, inferences about what you think is happening. And the more you do that, of course, the less evidence-based it becomes. But, you know, these are these are some of the problems in psychology so that's basically what cognitive psychology is it's about modeling this uh, this black box and um, so it tries to understand the mind in terms of functions um, and processes so what's going on and what are the processes that are happening in the in the mind mm-hmm. so one of the one of the areas that is talked about in terms of learning and in how we make sense of the world is called category learning and I think this makes a lot of sense really if you think about what learning actually is from a cognitive approach learning is basically about um, putting everything into categories Mm. Um, and when you when you see it like that I think that's one of those kind of eureka moments for me when I first learned that that's Mm. kind of yes that's what it is and we have this essentially our, our mind is a is a great big categorizing machine that is categorizing everything into various bins. Would you explain that a bit more? <clears throat> yeah. So, um, so the an example in in the book it talks about is if uh, if you if you're introduced to a bunch of people, um, and let's say you're introduced to twenty people, yeah. and your host said, right, some of those people were very influential within this business. Let's say it was a corporate event. Some of those people are very influential within the business 
and some of them are, are not influential at all. Let's say half and half. Um, what you might then start to do is try to identify some attributes about those people that might make you think they were the influential ones compared to mm. the not very influential ones. What would help is if your host said, look, here's an example. You know, that person over there is very influential. So now you've got a kind of model, if you like, of what an influential person is in that firm. Mm. So what are you going to do? You start, you're going to start comparing other people with that individual. So you're mm. categorizing. You're saying, right, this person spoke this way with this accent, was this tall, um, was you know the way that they acted. Um, therefore, that's, that's a category or that's a bunch of attributes that I'm going to look for in the other people and I'm going to then put them in the same category. So if you think about some of the difficulties that we have in society, like, um, you know, racism or sexism or all the assumptions that people make about other people, a mm. lot of it is down to these this tendency of categorizing. Um, so we tend to put people in categories based on. Do you think that's inherent or learned? Oh, crumbs. I can't believe you've asked that question. Well, that's a that's an unbelievably good question, Celine. You should just hmm. drop your mic right there. <laughs> I'm just too good. I ask all the My good God, questions. That's a great question. Well, that's that's been a debate, and that's still a debate. So Jerome Bruner and uh, his colleagues um, in the 50s, and I, I side with these guys, actually, is that it is learned. Mm-hmm. So we learn to categorize based on our experience. Um, and if you think about it, when you're a child, this starts as soon as you start interacting with the world, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, you do that playing Lego, you do it with, oh, this is a, this is a fast car, this is a slow car, this is a, um, you know. And again, this is where Boys, some of toys, the... Toys, girls, toys. Exactly. Some of these kind of um, stereotypes come from. Um, so yeah, we're we're kind of doing that all the time. Watch television programs, our parents, our friends. We're we're all being influenced, and we're basically identifying, and we're deciding how to sort out all these things that are happening in the world into all these various different bins or boxes that we can say, right, this belongs in that box, this belongs in that box, and that's not to say that one thing can't belong in more than one category. Mm. Obviously, they do. That's why it's very complicated because we have overlapping categories all over the place and it's very, very complicated. Um, but that's what we're doing. So I, I think I'm with Bruna et al. And I think that um, this is something we learn. But there are some that think there are, that actually it's innate. Um, so um, what's his name? Uh, he's still alive. Um that narrows it down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't believe I just forgot him. Noam Chomsky, mm-hmm. um, who's actually a linguist, but he he thinks that a lot of these things are innate, like language itself, for instance, is an innate property. I personally mm-hmm. don't buy that. I think these things are are essentially learned. But anyway, that's that that's uh, uh, still a an argued topic. But I think most most for most practical purposes, we think these things are actually learned through our experiences. Mm. So basically that's what we're doing. We're categorizing. So again, if you think about how cults and high control groups use this psychological tendency for us to categorize, what do you reckon? I think they will in the sense that they're people from this society, aren't they? They're from this world. So they're categorized based on that fact. Um, and they always do, don't they? Like in JWs, they're like, choose a spiritual wife. Or like, they're more spiritual. They're not very oh. spiritual. So that's categories, isn't it? So how do you identify a spiritual partner versus a non-spiritual partner? So oh. there'll be, there'll Good be question, things... Because you were looking for a spiritual partner, <laughs> but mum proclaims to have never really believed it. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but she went and did extra proof. pioneering yeah, to prove it. 
She's like, that's yeah, a so high that's, school card. That's very interesting. We'll come come to the mm. social learning bit in a minute, but um, but yeah, I think I think groups, high control groups, do this all the time because they, the, the our categories, as I said, are not innate. They are learned, and we continue to learn them as time goes by. I mean, this relates a bit to the Weltanschauung thing we um, episode mm-hmm. we talked about because our Weltanschauung is very much the way we've categorized the world. That's how we make sense of the world. We're making mm-hmm. sense of it through categories. And therefore, if if we have a threat to those categories that we've nicely created for ourselves, then that's when people start to um, get disturbed because they're the network of their um, Weltanschauung or their categories is starting to be disturbed. So I think that that kind of sits quite nicely within that mm. idea. Um, but you think about what high control groups do. They recategorize a lot of things, you know. So what might have been good before and um, positive is now bad and, and negative, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they categorize things according to um, their own way of looking at the world and their own categorization so you know um a spiritual wife a um is also a submissive wife yeah so there we go in the bin of spiritual um qualities or attributes that you would expect in a spiritual wife you have submissive qualities there um Mm -hmm. now in outside outside of that organization um submissive qualities are not necessarily very useful for you um therefore you know are they actually desirable well i don't think they are particularly um but within that setting then they are they are they are the thing that we want Mm. women to be like so um it's a recategorizing essentially um children you know being obedient to their parents in in everything and um uh, and then obviously, as they grow up, doing the things that they should be doing, you know, what's a spiritual man, what's not a spiritual man, what's a mm-hmm. what's a good Jehovah's Witness, who's not a good Jehovah's Witness, uh, people who are getting to the meeting on time every week for every single meeting versus people who don't. So we're, we're kind of categorizing all the time. This is a weak family. That's a strong family. This is a, um, you know, a a um a spiritual brother this is not a spiritual brother that was a good answer this wasn't a good answer these are all ways of categorizing the world and and cults do this in their own way for their own purposes you know again going back to the children of god example um love the law of love for most christians is to be kind to one another but for david berg the leader of that cult it was basically being able to have sex with anyone he wanted so that's how he categorized a certain behavior so yeah it's um, they're, they're doing that all the time they're in they're um putting on us their own categorization and they're they're encouraging us to to recategorize things or categorize things in the way that they want us to um how we do that is through hypothesis testing so if you're a scientist you might have a hypothesis and then you test that to see if that works for you if that gives you the result you've been looking for. Um, If we think about naive scientists, which we all are to some degree, we're all kind of, um, um, uh, what's the word, lay lay scientists, if you like. We we all have hypotheses, ideas about the world. So we might categorize something in this pot Mm. and then we see whether it sits in that pot. And this, again, is why cults keep you within their group because... Every time you categorize something according to the the group's categories, they want to see that it, you know, ends a certain way. Whereas in the world, you'll see that actually that doesn't quite work the same way. So they want you to stick within their social group to make sure that the categories all work the way that they they for foretell it's going to work so you know like not going to university for instance for lots of groups lots of cults you're encouraged to stay away from university and uh, that's in the category of dangerous things um and if you're in the organization and you see people going to university and then leaving the church the truth Mm -hmm. the organization that just confirms to you that yeah that belongs in that category see told you People who go to university leave the truth. 
it's in the dangerous category. Mm. Of course, if you're outside, you don't see it that way. It's in a different mm. category. It's in a bettering yourself category. It's in a developing yourself category. So that's why cults are very insular. They try to control the way that people categorize and make sense of their world through that. Mm. So, mm. any thoughts on that? I said my big mic drop for I didn't did. believe. I got a you good did. one in there. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, but I think we've got a third one. We have. So the third one is um, well, it's called socio-cultural learning. So this comes from the um, social psychology school, if you like. Yeah, sociology, um, is it? Well, it's it's social it's social psychology. So it's more mm-hmm. um, about how minds work. So if you okay. think of, if you think about psychology as being about the mind, um, well, cognitive psychology is about the individual mind. Social psychology is how minds work and relate to sure. each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so human learning, as far as social, social cultural learning is concerned, is, is about tools. And a big, big one of those tools is that the tool of language that we share with other people. So human learning is always mediated through tools. And they use this word um, uh, technologies, which reminds me a lot of, um, uh, of, of something. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute because I think it's quite useful to think about that. Scientology. It does indeed, yeah, Scientology. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to using technologies, you know, um, you know, we tend to think about technology as being computers and calculators and things like that, but it's, it just means a, um, a way of using certain types of thinking tools or symbolic tools in order to understand the world. So we learn through tools. So we have sort of symbols that help represent the world. A language is probably the most, well, is the most important of those tools in my view for human beings so in order to understand the world we actually have to talk about it mm-hmm. so in that from a social perspective from a social psychological perspective learning is inherently bound up with the way that we talk and work through what we're seeing what we're experiencing and we do that by talking to other people um, so we only can understand the world through the the conversations that we have through the way we talk about it and what we say about it um and that's integral to our sense of of who we are and how we relate to other people um now there's something that i i read as i was doing the research for this podcast that i thought i really want to read this out so i'm gonna i'm gonna read this out something if that's okay and it's so it's from this book again i will put the reference in um, in a, um, when we've done it. James Versch, a leading social cultural theorist, has explained the properties of mediated action by using the example of pole vaulting. So here's, okay. he's basically using the idea of a pole as a tool. I see. Here, both the pole, a culturally given tool, and the pole vaulter are intrinsic to the activity. The pole both lends itself to being used in various kinds of ways and at the same time imposes various kinds of constraints. The advent of a new type of pole can make new records possible. Some pole vaulters will adopt the new pole with enthusiasm and make it their own, Mm. while others will stick resolutely with the old technology. And then it goes on to say, this notion of making something your own is referred to as appropriation. It Mm. is a term specifically used to indicate that tools are not just picked up and put down as and when they're needed, but they become part of how we construe the world, how we approach problems, and even how we relate to one another. Mm. So I'll come back to the word appropriation in a minute, but the, the phrase that jumped out to me like I don't know what was this making something your own. Mm. So this is one of the things that that young Jehovah's Witness children are told over and over again to make the truth your own. And if you think about what's going on within a congregation, within a cult, not just JWs, but lots and lots of these sorts of groups, 
They are using discussion, discourse, talking at the meetings, talking to each other, talking after the meeting, Mm. going and talking to each other on the ministry, talking at um, get-togethers. And it's all of this that is, is helping the group to essentially fashion this mm. tool called, you know, whatever it is. Um, and they're making it their own through this activity of thinking and talking and constructing it in their mind. And so the truth itself, this concept of the truth, which um, of course is a bit of language, but it's also more than that. It itself becomes a tool to understand the world, to understand what's happening. So, you know, everything out there is a lie. Everything in here is the truth. And then everything is is thought of through that lens or by using that that understanding yeah. of what that actually means. Mm. So, again, we come back to this this idea of, of this worldview or Weltanschauung that we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. Um, appropriation doesn't mean the sort of appropriation we mean when we talk about appropriating another culture's yeah. thing it's a more specific use of the word yeah, that's right yeah um but yeah i don't know what you thought about that whether you think that's kind of relevant um i'm not sure the only thing that came to my mind is what i did when i did like my media psychology sort of amalgam my course at uni was very i just did lots of stuff um <laughs> so well it was like i did media and communications and english and literature but that also meant that I did a lot of film studies. I did a lot of psychology and I did a lot of sociology. Mm. Um, but I did do a course on, so obviously we have we discussed on here about dualism? I think so. Yeah, we did. Like we yeah. did Cartesian discussion did. in that course. Yeah. And we also discussed, um, yeah, tools and how uh, our brains like map. So we said how like when you use a sort of a tool, um, it kind of like becomes, it, you know, with regular use, it kind of becomes a part of you, like you mm, map through right. it. Mm. So like the way that we see, so that like neuro, in terms of neuroscience, I suppose, like the way you know, the way your brain lights up to move your hand is the same way that it like uses a spoon, is it uses a phone, is operates a car, like your um, proprioception. So the way that you exist in the world like extends out into those tools so i know that like obviously there's like connections with the tools that we use but then there's the that the, then it goes further than that with this isn't it it's about the psychology yeah. of it i think we i mean an example of of how we we then develop that is that we then use these things as metaphors to mean deeper mm. um truths about the world as far as we as we see them um so we um we learn to make sense of the world mm. in a very specific way through talk and through the use of language. Yeah. Um, and it's that, it's that language that becomes such an important tool. It to becomes us. very connected to you, I suppose, if you think of it in that mapping way, if you like, if you take it on to be part of yourself, it becomes quite precious to you. Absolutely. <laughs> because yeah, you've chosen a... that tool and, that is you you extend your sort of like selfhood into it so absolutely yeah um there's a and there's another word that i wanted to introduce kind of comes from that which is enculturation so um, i'm going to read again another little clip from the book this time it's quoting from celie like brown the meeting isn't it i know it is but it's just better <laughs> than i can no 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 it's fine i'm just teasing so I'm, I'm going um, to read this. It says, oh, enculturating may at first appear to have little to do with learning, but it is in fact what people do in learning to speak, read and write or becoming school children, office workers, researchers and so on. I could add to that cult members mm. from a very early age and throughout their lives, people consciously or unconsciously adopt the behavior and belief system of new social groups. Given the chance to observe and practice in situ the behaviour of members of the culture, people pick up relevant jargon, imitate behaviour, mm. and gradually start to act in accordance with its norms. These cultural practices are often extremely complex. Nonetheless, given the opportunity to observe and practice them, people adopt them with great success. Students, for instance, can quickly get an implicit sense of what is suitable diction what makes a relevant question 
what is legitimate or illegitimate behavior in a particular activity. The ease and success with which people do this belie the immense importance of the process. Now, that is absolutely a description of what happens in any yes. situation, and including like a cult. Using cult specifically unjargonify it for anyone that finds that tricky as well. Yeah, so basically what it's what it's saying is that um, as you uh, observe, as you are... Um, I'll put you on the spot a bit. Ensconced in it. I'm trying to think of the right words. Mm. As you are embedded within this cultural situation, as you are completely covered within this cultural situation, situation Mm. then you start to observe and pick up and imitate the behavior the language the norms which are the normal bits of behavior that you think are are right um and you start to do that um and that then becomes a a sense of of who we are particular with particularly within that within that situation so at the end there it says it it helps us or it helps students know what a legitimate or illegitimate behavior is, for instance, what, how to form a question, how to form a, uh, a way of writing something. Well, that's, you can replace that with the cult, you know? So if you're in a cult through this process, you come to know what's right and wrong within this cult. What can I do? What can't I do? What's going to be looked upon badly? What is going to get me into trouble? Uh, what is acceptable behavior? What isn't? Uh, what does God like? What doesn't God like? What does the cult leader like? What don't they like? And so mm. you're you're being um, uh, you, you're being enculturated. It's it's becoming part of who you are. Um, and that the reason this relates to tools is because it's through language that this is happening. So language is just a, a sense is is a set of symbolic sounds that are associated with certain concepts. So, you know, we, we come to associate certain ideas and concepts with certain phonemes or sounds that we make. Mm. We string those together and we can build pictures and stories. This is, language is, is the key to what makes human beings so special, actually, in all, with all our faults and um you know and wonders but it is this language this ability for us to create a sense of culture to create a world through language that we do together um, and of course in a cult that's what's happening mm. but but coming back to the point so yes all organizations all social situations do this the difference with the cult is that it it does it in a very unethical way mm. and in a way that only serves the purpose of either the cult leader or the cult leadership. Um, so you you find that the individuals are actually not getting anything out of that arrangement, not getting anything mm. out of that situation. It's only the cult leaders that are. Yeah. But it's a natural process. So I think that's the thing I want to emphasize about today's podcast is that by identifying the psychological processes involved in cult membership and in cult exploitation or in coercive exploitation of people this doesn't mean that what they're doing is okay they are using normal psychological processes but they're doing it in a way that is damaging to the individual so this has always Mm. been my argument against the sociologists who say that what's going on in cults is nothing more than just normal social interaction. Of course, these things are social psychological effects. A lot of them we understand quite well, but they are being done in such a way that is damaging to Mm. the people involved. And that's what makes them a problem. Yeah. I think that's a good a good statement there, a good final statement. <laughs> so that's been a much more, um, you know, m- much more meaty one, much more difficult one. Um, I hope it's not too um, impenetrable. You always do this. And I, I think know. we need to not because I think people always enjoy it. <laughs> so that's how I sign it off. I know you enjoyed it. Very good. <laughs>
Cool. Well, I've I've hogged the mic today, so I'm, I apologise to those of you who prefer to hear Celine. Uh, we'll find uh, something more specialised for Celine next time. No, we don't have favourites. Don't worry. Excellent. Well, thank you very much mm. for listening, everybody. It's been great. Um, don't forget to do all the likey stuff and the subscribey stuff and um, reviewy stuff. Mm-hmm. Review mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts if you can. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much and see you next time. Bye. Bye. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs>